Thank you, Jesus, that you are precious, that your friendship is to be treasured and valued above anything that we can possibly imagine. And I pray, Father, that we would see that in a fresh way this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This morning, since we're sharing stories about our childhood and the things that we're not so proud of, there's something that happened to me, and that is, my mom is an awesome mom. And growing up, she would pack me lunches every day. And they were big lunches. They would come in a big plastic sack, and they would be filled with all kinds of nutritious, amazing stuff for lunch. And as a little kid, I just would grab my bag out and eat my lunch, and I thought it was amazing. But as I got older, I began to look around at the other kids. Some of them would be like, your mom makes you lunch? They had to make their own lunch, and somehow that was cooler than having your mom make your lunch. In hindsight, I'm not sure how that works, but they began to pressure me like, oh, your mom makes your lunch, huh? What does she put in there? And then they're looking at this big bag full of stuff, and they have, they have like candy in theirs, they have gushers, they have all these amazing things. And I have like whole wheat bread, I have a fruit, I have a natural peanut butter, I ha- and, and natural jelly, and I'm looking at it, well, I don't know, my mom says it's good for me, carrot sticks, <laughs> and I'm sad to say, I began to become embarrassed by my lunch. In fact, by the time I got to high school, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this because my mom listens to the recordings of a lot of my sermons, but... <laughs> But by the time I got to high school and I finally was able to drive myself to school, I would go to school and I would buy a pizza or something at school. My mom, I didn't want to make my mom feel bad and I didn't want to make my friends think that I was weird. So I would take the lunch from my mom and I would keep it in the back seat of my car. And on the way home, I would find a place to pull off and eat my lunch really quick before I got home and was going to eat dinner with my family. That's how embarrassed I was of my lunch. You know, sometimes some of the most precious, some of the most beautiful, some of the sweetest things in life, I would be glad to have my mom pack me a healthy lunch today. And she does when she comes to visit. She's amazing at taking good care of us with all that we have going on at home. But sometimes ordinary things that are exceedingly precious become ordinary to us. They become something that we're embarrassed of. They become something that we aren't proud of anymore. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I'd like to dive into this chapter a little bit deeper over the next couple of weeks. John chapter 6 in verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his, what does it say? Signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Now would you follow somebody who was going around healing diseased people? I mean, you can understand why they're excited. They're following Jesus because he's healing people. They're diseased friends who had leprosy, who had uh, issues with blood flow like we talked about a few weeks ago, who... They had heard about the miracles and the signs that Jesus was doing. And as he's here in his Galilean ministry, people are beginning to flock to Jesus. But we learned something earlier on in the book of John that 
This isn't necessarily a good thing. Go back with me to John chapter 2 and verse 23. John chapter 2 and verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. They saw his signs and they began to believe. This is when in Jerusalem when he went up to the Passover. The Gospel of John records the different Passovers that he went to. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a second. But he goes to this one in Jerusalem early on in his ministry. Many believed because of the signs that he did. But look at verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. He knew that just because they saw the signs, just because they recognized the good stuff that he was doing for people, didn't mean that they were truly falling in love with him. That they were following him with noble purposes. That they were following him for the right reasons. And so he didn't just entrust himself to them because he recognized that there was still a hardness to their hearts. There was still a need for the Spirit to do a work in their hearts. Back in John chapter 6, people are flocking. And look at uh, verse 3. It says, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. We learn from the other Gospels, this is the only story that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. The only one of Jesus' miracles that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. We learn in the other Gospels that Jesus had gone apart to try to rest a while with his disciples. He's up on a mountain with his disciples, and here's a crowd around him down below who's looking for Jesus. They know that he's there somewhere, and they're all waiting for him. They're all looking for him. And he's watching these sheep without a shepherd, and his heart is moved with compassion. And verse 4 says something really fascinating, which is very pertinent for what we do today. Verse 4 says, Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This is the only Passover of the various Passovers that are mentioned over his three and a half years of ministry. I believe there's four of them. That Jesus doesn't go up to Jerusalem. At this point, it's become too dangerous for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. The next Passover that Jesus goes to in Jerusalem, he'll be crucified on Passover. He's not going up to Jerusalem for this Passover. But instead, there's something special happening that is very similar to the Passover service. And Jesus is going to do something extraordinary and something very special. Today we get to celebrate communion, which has its roots in the Passover service. When the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and plague after plague was coming, and finally they got to the last one and they had that special service with the the Paschal lamb, and they put the blood over the the lintel on their doorpost, and the, the destroyer who came through did not touch those who put the blood, representing Jesus and his delivering power. Like we sang earlier, I'm redeemed by the blood of Of the Lamb. This Passover service is very similar to what we do today. We will use unleavened bread today in our communion service, just like they used. Not the same bread, but (laughs) they probably had a little bit different. But our little squares are unleavened, just like their bread was unleavened, representing the uh, sinlessness of Christ. So this was at a Passover. That's the setting that's taking place. Jesus is on a mountain. He's looking down and there's crowds that are flocking around him. And verse 5, it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, 
he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus always had compassion for the needs of people. Real, genuine needs that people had. People came to him and said, hey, show us a sign. And he wouldn't just work a miracle just to to please their fancy. But when somebody had a genuine need and they came to Jesus, Jesus would meet that need. Even when they didn't expect that he was needing something or that, that he was able to meet that need, he would still meet that need. But today, Jesus says something different. He says, hey, Philip, you're from Bethsaida. Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida, which was close by where they are here on the side of the Sea of Galilee. He says, you're from Bethsaida. Where should we go and buy bread for all of these people? All of these people are going to get hungry. And sure enough, the other Gospels record that Jesus teaches them all day long. And by the end of the day, they're weary and they can't get to where they need to go. And there's a lot of people there who are going to be really hungry. Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? How can we quench, how can we satisfy their hunger? Verse 6. But this he said to test them, test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already has in mind the solution to the problem. Sometimes you and I are faced with challenges as we seek to seek Jesus ourselves. Or to share Jesus with others. Challenges that may seem insurmountable. Challenges that we may not know how to get past. But Jesus already has a solution in mind. He's longing to help us out with the problems that we may be facing in our lives. But it's fascinating here. What is the language? What did Jesus say, or what does it say here that Jesus did this, asked this question to Philip for? To test him. Right? He wanted to, to, to see what his faith in Jesus was like. Did he believe in Jesus as a, an all-sufficient provider for every possible need, even on a scale that was beyond anything imaginable? This is fascinating language. Because I want you to turn back with me to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is after the Exodus. Actually, Deuteronomy is the recording of what took place. Moses is nearing his death, and he's recording what had taken place. In Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, Moses is talking about how God had brought them out after the Passover. He brought them out into the wilderness, and as they were in the wilderness, Moses says this, so he humbled you and allowed you to, what does it say? Hunger. He allowed you to get hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man will not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That he wanted to test you. He lets you get hungry. He lets you desire something more so that he could show you that he is the fulfillment of every desire that you have in your life. That he alone can provide for every need that you have. Sometimes God lets us go into difficult and trying circumstances in our lives. We face trials that we do not understand. They're difficult. They're problematic. Just like Leah shared last week about our journey through infertility. For six long years wondering, God, you've given us these promises, but but what's going on? What's, What's happening? Why is it taking so long? And God is wanting for us to realize that man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That his promises are enough. That he is faithful. That he is trustworthy. That you can cling to Jesus and his promises in the midst of circumstances that look very difficult. So going back to John chapter 6, we see here that there's already a parallel to the manna that was given to them in the wilderness. Do you see that here? The manna was given after a testing period of them becoming hungry in the wilderness and the manna was given to test them. And it's interesting some of the ways that it was used to test them. It it was used to test their faithfulness to the Sabbath commandment. Would they go out and gather it on the Sabbath? Or would they listen to the commandment and gather double the amount on Friday? Would they gather more than, would they try to preserve it overnight? Or would they believe that Jesus would provide each and every day just what they needed? So here, back in John chapter 6, when Jesus tests Philip, verse 6, but this he said to him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. He says, look, you could work for over six months at a day laborer's wage. Let's say that's, I don't know, $15,000. You could, you could have $15,000 in your pocket. And you could go and you could try to buy enough bread for all of these people. But Jesus, there's 5,000 men here. Not including women and children. So, I mean, that's at least probably 10,000 people on the conservative side of things. To feed them enough bread is, that's going to take more money than, than one of us could earn in an entire half a year of working. Jesus likes to use practical, everyday experiences in our lives to illustrate grand and beautiful truths. You know, this story goes on and we know this story well. What happens? Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? What is just five barley loaves and two small fish among so many? Now, how many of you have eaten bread from barley? I saw two hands, three hands, four hands. Some of you may have eaten it more than you know. Now, part of my embarrassment growing up with my lunches actually has to do with having barley in your bread. Because we read this story and we learn about how Jesus gives thanks and he, he thanks God for what he's going to do. And he's fully relying on the Father to provide this incredible miracle. And the, the loaves are given to the, the disciples and the disciples give it out to the people and it's multiplied and, and all of them have as much as they could possibly want and they're all satisfied. But they're satisfied with what? With barley loaves. It's pretty fascinating actually to read what Philo says about barley. Writing about barley in this time. This is what Philo says about it. He says, Barley is suited for irrational animals and people in unhappy circumstances. It costs half to a, a third of what wheat bread would cost. Right? So in my lunches, my mom didn't just use whole wheat bread, but she actually used 
Ezekiel 4-9 bread on my sandwiches. I don't know how many of you have had Ezekiel 4-9 bread before, but it has barley in it. Not just barley, but it's sprouted barley, okay? I brought a loaf just today just to illustrate what it's like, right? For those of you that have not seen this before. Now, it's kind of dry. Looks a little rough, right? Um, and I imagine that it may have looked even more rough when you're grinding it with a stone. You don't have uh, the, the modern methods that we have today. And this is the bread that Jesus is multiplying to them. Now, it probably wasn't sprouted like this. This is very nutritious. This is very good for you. My mom told me that. In fact, she would make uh, uh, sandwiches where we'd have a burger bun with Big Franks in it, and it would have the Ezekiel 4-9 bun on it. She would make burritos that had Ezekiel 4-9 shells that cracked and didn't hold the beans in like every other kid's burrito did. I didn't value these things as a teenager. These things weren't precious to me. I didn't like that bread in my lunch. Sometimes things that are exceedingly precious become very ordinary to us. Just look at what happens in the, the, the experience of the Israelites if you go to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. I mean, you imagine how incredible it was to them. When they complained that they didn't, they were hungry in the wilderness, God began to rain down manna each and every day. Every day they could go out, except for on Friday or Sabbath. Sabbath there was only, they, they had to gather double on Friday. But every six days they would go out and, and for six days they would gather it. But look in, in Numbers chapter 11 and verse 5. Actually verse 4, let's go back to verse 4. Does now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing except this manna before our eyes. They're despising this gift that God is giving them every morning. They can't stand it. They're sick of it. They've been eating it for what they feel like is too long. It's a gift from heaven and yet it has become twisted in their eyes to where they don't value it anymore. It's not precious to them. It's not something that they get excited about. It's not something that they're waking up in the morning saying, I can't wait to go gather manna this morning. But instead they're like, oh, All there is to eat is manna. Again, this morning, they're frustrated by the continual repetition of what God is giving them in this incredible gift in a wilderness where they couldn't get anything else to eat and God is providing for them day by day. Now this is significant because I believe that the enemy does the same thing in our lives today. In 1 Corinthians, it says that the God of this world has blinded our eyes. In fact, go there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So that we can't see the beauty of all that God wants and has for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 4. Three, but even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the gospel of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul's saying, hey, the gospel, this beautiful thing about the cross, the thing that we sing about, I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it becomes foolishness. It, it's, it's veiled to those who are perishing. They don't see the value of it. They can't comprehend that this ordinary sounding event is the most beautiful moment in all of history as a carpenter goes to the cross and dies a gruesome death of crucifixion. Paul earlier in Corinthians calls it the foolishness of the cross. It's a stumbling block to the Gentiles. It's, it's not wise to the Gentiles. They don't get it. They can't understand why this cross is such a valuable thing to them. And it's not much different as you go on and you read in John chapter 6 because Jesus multiplies all of this bread to them, but they don't really care about who it is who's multiplying it for them. They only care about his ability to make more bread. If you go down to verse 32 of this chapter, actually actually verse 31, they're, they're challenging him and they're saying, hey, will you do like Moses did in verse 31? It says, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Will you work a work like that? Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, you're chasing after barley loaves. You're thinking about manna back 1,500 years ago. And all the while, what you really need is me. And he keeps making it more and more plain. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He says, I can satisfy and quench every longing of your soul if you'll only look to be fully satisfied in me. If you'll stop chasing after fulfillment in all these other ways. If you'll only look to me for the fulfillment of every desire of your heart. I'll satisfy you. I'll quench the hunger. I'll I'll take away the thirst. I will be all that you need. I am the bread of life. Goes on, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written by the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. He says, I have seen the Father, and I've come to reveal the Father to you. Verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then verse 48 again, he says, I am the bread of life. You know, Jesus chose ordinary and common things to represent grand and beautiful truths. He did it starting off in chapter 2. In chapter 2, uh, I mean, you have the, the water that's turned into wine. But you have uh, multiple other times where in John chapter 3, you have Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you've got to be born again. He says, what, do I crawl inside of my mother in order to be born again? 
You have in John chapter 4 that Jesus goes to the woman at the well and he says, you need the water of life. And the woman says, do you have a bucket? I don't see that you have a bucket. How are you going to draw water? So often, Jesus used physical truths to illustrate grand and beautiful spiritual truths and people missed it. They were going after, well, okay, get me some water out of this well. Okay, uh, Tell me how to be born again. Tell me how to crawl back into my mother. And Jesus is trying to get them to something more grand and more beautiful. I am the bread of life. I am the one who satisfies every longing, every craving of your soul. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus says, I'm giving you myself. I'm giving you something so precious and so beautiful. And this, my friends, is what the God of this age wants to blind us to more than anything else. In Signs of the Times, this awesome article talking about the preciousness of Jesus. It says that Satan is seeking to veil Jesus from our sight, to eclipse his light. For when we get even a glimpse of his glory, we are attracted to him. If only we can see his glory. But even though we might profess to know about Christ, even though we might profess to be Christians, even though there are two billion people on the planet today, who say that they're Christians and who celebrate similar services to what we're celebrating today, I believe that there are many who don't grasp what Jesus can be to them. I believe that many of us have not come to the fullness of grasping what Jesus can be to us. And this is why it goes on to say, sin hides from our view the matchless charms of Jesus. Does Jesus have matchless charms to you? Do I see in Jesus a treasure that's, that's worth everything to me? Prejudice, selfishness, self-righteousness, and passion blind our eyes so that we do not discern the Savior. Oh, if we would by faith draw nigh to God, He would reveal to us His glory, which is His character, and the praise of God would flow forth from human hearts and be sounded by human voice. Then we would forever cease to give glory to Satan by sinning against God and talking doubt and unbelief. We would no longer stumble along grumbling and mourning and covering the altar of God with our tears. We wouldn't go along saying, God, you've got to give us more bread. You've got to give us something better. We need stuff from you, God. But instead, we would realize that we have the most precious and awesome gift in Jesus himself. That all we need is his presence. What we need is a personal friendship with Jesus. Not the stuff that He can put into our lives. Not a fixed car. Not another job. Those things may be given to us by God. But what we really need is Jesus Himself in all of His preciousness. Sadly, a lot of people in the end of John end up walking away. He continues to compare this to the experience of Moses. And he goes on to say, you know, the, the Israelites died in the wilderness. They didn't really grasp the saving power of Jesus. And then it goes on to say that many turned away from him in John 6, verse 66. 
Many walked away from Jesus as he's simply there offering himself and saying, I am the bread of life. And sadly, this has often happened to Christians throughout history. That which is extraordinary and precious becomes ordinary in our eyes through familiarity. Does that make sense? We've had too many of our lunches packed in such a way that we're like, yeah, I get this all the time and I'm just kind of embarrassed by it and I kind of rather not have that in my lunch anymore, mom. Back in the year 1888, something special happened in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church began in a way that was focused on the preciousness of Jesus. Jesus is coming again. The Millerite movement was so excited about Jesus coming back. There was this great awakening of revival and excitement about Jesus coming back. Now, they misunderstood the event that was going to take place in 1844, and they misunderstood what prophecy was going to show them. And But they continued to share the beautiful truths about Jesus. They began to learn about the Sabbath and the commandments and all these things. And they began to share these things. And Jesus was precious to them. But over time, these precious truths became more and more ordinary to them. And little by little, they began to forget the preciousness of Jesus himself. In the midst of all the doctrines and the things that they had put on top of who Jesus was, they began to leave Jesus out of the truth itself. In the year 1888, a conference happened in Minneapolis where two guys by the names of Alonzo T. Jones and Elliot J. Wagner began to present on the preciousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. This is at the, the general conference session. Now these guys are in their late 30s. I think it was. They're in their late 30s, early 30s. One was born in, in 1850. The other was born in 1855. And they began to present just as young men about the preciousness of Jesus. They began to present that, yes, the law is important, but the law is only important as the the living law comes into us and lives out His righteousness in us. It's only important as we recognize the love that God has for us, as we realize that He has paid it all on the cross. And as they preached this message, sadly, a whole lot of people rejected it. So we don't want anything to do with this. This sounds like you're doing away with the law. This sounds like you're doing away with things that are very, very precious to us. There's something interesting in John chapter 6. One more thing I wanted to note from the story. Do you remember what happened when Jesus goes to give them the two small fish and the loaves? When he goes to multiply it, what he has the disciples have the people do? 10,000 people there. In verse 10, it says, Then he said, make the people sit down. And it was in groups, we learned from the other Gospels. He says, make the people sit down. Now look at what it says. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. He has the people sit down on this beautiful grassy field. It's soft, it's luxurious, there's much grass there. It's the perfect place for a banquet served up by a king. Signs of the Times goes on to talk about this very time period when A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner began to preach about how precious Jesus is. And it says this, Jesus could not lead them, talking about ministers, by the side of still waters and into the green pastures of his matchless love because they would not be led. 
Friends, Jesus is longing to do like Psalms 23 says, to lead us as a good shepherd so that we will not want to lead us by into green pastures and by still waters to restore our soul. But Jesus couldn't lead these ministers by the side of still waters and into green pastures of his matchless love because they would not be led. Because the ministers had not Jesus abiding in the heart by faith, they were not clothed with Christ's righteousness. Friends, I don't want that to be me today. I don't want to have become so familiar with the the ordinances that we do as a church, the doctrines that we understand from the Bible. I don't want to become so familiar with it that I forget the preciousness of Jesus as my personal Savior. I can tell you today that this is some of my favorite bread. I love when Leah goes to the store and gets Ezekiel bread. She thinks I'm crazy now because... I like to eat it like this, dry, without any margarine or peanut butter or anything else on it. This is good, and it's so healthy. It's, it's sprouted bread that gives you extra energy. Mm. It is a little hard to chew, I will admit that. But I just think it tastes delicious. And I believe that that's a miracle. I actually prayed that God would begin to change my taste buds, not specifically for that bread, but in general, because I didn't like things that were good for me. But I'm so thankful now that my mom packed my lunch with bread that I think is a precious treasure now, and I wish that I had always treasured it. Someday we're going to recognize in the cross of Jesus Christ a treasure that is beyond anything that we can imagine in the entire universe. And I want that day to come sooner than later. I want today, as I take part in the communion service, as I take that little wafer and remember the Passover that was taking place uh, some 4,000 years ago, or I want to, to remember what Jesus did for me on the cross. I want that to be precious this morning. Not just a ritual that I go through, but a real living experience with the God of the universe who gave himself for me. This morning, I just want to invite you as we go about this communion service today to specifically be praying that Jesus makes it special for you today. That Jesus makes that relationship with him special. And I want to remind you that we have the All About Jesus seminar that's coming up April 19 to 27. There's awesome flyers for it out in the lobby and tell you all the times that it's going to be taking place. It's a little over a week long, but it's totally focused on the preciousness of Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus that's meaningful. He's going to share stories that are going to captivate your heart and encourage you just like it did for Leah and I some seven or eight years ago when we went through the seminar. But friends, more than anything... I just hope that we'll walk out of here today with a determination to day by day seek to understand and be satisfied by the preciousness of Jesus because he is the bread of life. Would you pray with me and then I'll give some instructions for us as we go out to celebrate the communion service. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are the bread of life. 
that you are sustaining and satisfying, that there is rich nourishment in a closeness to you, that you are life itself, that apart from you, we can't even live. God, I pray that you would be more precious to us than ever before, that though some things may seem ordinary to us, though we may have done them a hundred times before, or maybe if it's our first time ever, that today we would treasure and value Jesus, that we would feast upon the richness of who you are, that we would dive into the Bible that reveals your character, that we would be determined that the manna won't be wasted on us. Father, give us a hunger for the bread of life, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.